Trails need to be reconstructed. Please avoid building trails that go uphill. Okay, we'll, we'll think about that next time we create this thing. Um, too many bugs and spider webs. Please consider spraying the wilderness area to rid these uh, pests. Okay. The coyotes made too much noise last night and kept me awake. I don't know what you can do about that one. Uh, how about this one? Uh, they actually propose something to do. They say, a small deer came into our camp and stole my jar of pickles. Is there any way I can get reimbursed? And then my favorite out of all of these was, there are too many rocks in the mountains. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll clear those out for you next time you come. It, it seems to me that these people that are leaving these comments, they aren't really looking for a wilderness experience, are they? I mean, they they may say, we want the wilderness experience, but they really want comfort. They really want convenience more than anything else. Well, in a similar way, if you look across the state of the church, especially in the Western world, you'll see that there are people who are just like that as they approach their discipleship. As they follow Jesus, they want it to be convenient They want it to be comfortable, but as soon as the path begins to go uphill, just a little bit, they go, "Mm, can you pave that for me, please? Make it a little easier for me. Is there any way? There was actually one that I didn't say. They actually wanted an escalator system to to get people up the mountain that could not uh, go up the mountain by themselves. So many people throughout history have put their faith in the gospel of Jesus, but many of them, they want to do it on their own terms not God's terms. And I get that because when the gospel is presented often, unfortunately, it is sugar-coated. All it is is what you get out of this wonderful relationship that we have. Based on the, the sacrifice of Jesus, by the way, nothing that we do, it is a gift of God. It is grace. But that's all people have ever heard about their discipleship. And they've never been taught that there is actually some uphill that you must go through. And so they have become soft. They have become like these people that want a wilderness area, but they really don't want a wilderness area. They think just just as long as I believe, I'm okay. Just as long as I believe, oh, and, and, and even go to church occasionally. But there was a popular saying back in the 70s that going to church doesn't make you a disciple any more than going to McDonald's makes you a hamburger. I mean, that, that's, that's a ridiculous thing, but that's what people believe. Well, I go to church. I believe in God. Well, that's, that's a good starting point. As long as you understand what the Bible writers meant by belief, that's, that's what where we're lacking. And it's really due to the fault of preachers who don't teach what discipleship is all about because it wasn't Jesus that watered it down. Now, in fact, he's confronting that today in Luke chapter 14. And he's going to be pretty crystal clear about what discipleship involves. And it involves counting the cost. That's what discipleship looks like. So we want to read from Luke chapter 14 today, starting in verse 25. Let's look at the first three verses. Now, great crowds accompanied Jesus. And so he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, And does not, now pay attention, stay with me, and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children, and brothers and sisters, 
yes, even his own life, he cannot, not may not, not might not, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It started way, way long ago in Jesus' time where people wanted to come to him to gain the blessing. But as soon as it got tough, as soon as he began to teach things that were like, oh, I'm not sure I agree with that, Jesus, all of a sudden people began to turn away. When things got too hard, they would abandon him. And I wonder how that made Jesus feel. He gives us a clue at one point. Because at one point, all of these people, they heard his teaching and they said, we can't handle this, and they leave. And Jesus looks up at his 12 apostles and he says, how about you? Are you going to leave me also? Hmm. I wonder how, how that sits with Jesus. Not that he's going to water it down, but he goes, okay, um, are you going to abandon me as well? I, I love what Peter, though, says to, to Jesus in response in John chapter 6. He says, Master Um, to whom would we go? Because we recognize only you have the words of life. And so even though you may say hard things, we know it's worth it because your path is the only way to make us right with God. Only you have the words of life. You know, some people would look at Jesus' ministry and all these opportunities that he had for some real influencers to begin to follow him, and he did nothing. It's like he didn't read those books written in the 70s and 80s about church growth. Man, you got to get him in. It matters how big your church is and how many people are in the pews. It it matters because you're building this kingdom that really should make you look really, really good, Jesus. And yet Jesus doesn't water anything down. He doesn't make it soft. He, in fact, and he doesn't bait and switch. He tells you right up front, it's going to be hard. And there's going to be two things that he says about discipleship, the cost of discipleship. Two broad brushstrokes, if you will, that really, I, I love the fact that he didn't give us a list. Do this and this and this and this and this and this and this. He says, you know, I created you with a heart. I created you with a brain. Let me give you two overarching principles of what it means, what it costs to be my disciple. And then he tells them these two principles, and then he lets us realize and figure out, okay, so where does this fall into this? Does this mean disciple, or can I throw that away? So the first one is very simple. He talks about his unlimited or unbounded or unrestricted sovereignty. Sovereignty means that he is in charge. He gets to have the say. He gets to be the Lord. See, in our hearts, he's saying here that he must come first. Over our loved ones, over our self-interest, over our material possessions, over our plans, over our very lives. Now, some people get hung up on that word hate, where he says, if if you do not hate. Now, to them, it makes no sense for this Jesus that loves them, this loving Savior, to ask them to hate their mother and father, their sister, their brother, their their children. And you're right. It doesn't make sense for a loving God to tell us that we should hate one another. It doesn't make sense for Jesus to uphold 
in Mark 7, the command to honor your father and mother, and then to turn right around and say, now you must hate. The, the, the people who get hung up on that, they don't understand the fact that each language, throughout the history of languages, each language have their own phrases, their own idioms, their own, their own particular way of saying things that no other culture understands. I mean, seriously, if you talk about kicking the bucket, somebody in another culture or another time looks back and say, man, that bucket must have been very dangerous because it appears that once they kicked the bucket, they're now dead. Well, yes, you need to understand that that is an idiom, a, a, a phrase peculiar to our language. Or get down to the nitty-gritty. I don't... That sounds dirty. I don't want to get down to the nitty-gritty. What, what does that mean? Well, in English, we understand it means let's get down and, and throw away anything that's uh, peripheral and let's get down to what's really important. Let's get down to the nitty-gritty. In the future, people may look back at us and, and look at our literature and say, man, those guys must have had a, a lot of health problems because we read a lot about broken hearts. Broken heart? Oh, their hearts got... Did, did they have to be rushed to the hospital? No, we understand what we mean. So, when Jesus uses the word hate here, it's a Hebrewism. And his audience would have totally known what's going on. Because as you look throughout the Bible, the word hate oftentimes describes something that just means to love something less than something else. It's a comparative term. To, to be less preferential for one over the other. Now, when God said back uh, in the Old Testament, and then it's quoted in the New Testament, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. Well, first of all, uh, you have to go back to, to Israel's history. Uh, two sons, two twins were born to Isaac and Rebekah. Uh, one came out first, Esau, and then the second one was born, Jacob. And, and in those days, it would have been the firstborn that would have gotten the preferential treatment would have gotten the, the lion's share of the inheritance, would have gotten the blessing and the birthright. And yet God, in his sovereignty, said, no, I am choosing to prefer the younger over the older. I am choosing to prefer Jacob over Esau. Not that God hated Esau, but he was preferring Jacob. And by the way, by the way, it, he wasn't even talking about the individual people as much as he was talking about the nations that would come from these two boys. Because Jacob would one day become the father of the Israelites. And, and Esau would become the father of the Edomites. And if you look at God's preference as to who salvation would come through, it was not the Edomites. It was the Israelites. It was Israel. God does not hate Edomites. But he does not, had not chosen them, preferred them for his plan of salvation. That's why he said, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. It's a preferential thing. So going back to what Jesus says here in Luke, if you do not hate your parents, Jesus is saying the first cost of discipleship is preferential treatment for him and his ways, and his laws, to make him priority over all other relationships that naturally we would say, these are our people. I'm going to be good to them. I'm going to follow after them. And Jesus said, well, okay, 
What happens, though, when uh, they want you to do something that I don't want you to do? You see, there, there's one other place in Scripture, Matthew chapter 10, that, that Jesus actually says the exact same thing, but in this other way. Matthew 10 says, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but to bring a sword. Now, that not, Jesus is not calling for violence here. What he is saying is, I am going to, my laws, who I am, your uh, allegiance to me will sometimes sever ties. Because, you know, and, and this would have actually happened in the early church where a husband and wife are, are living together, they're married, and one of them becomes a Christian. One of them becomes a believer and begins to follow after Jesus and wants to do the things that Jesus wants them to do. But the other spouse does not want to follow Jesus and is in fact wanting the spouse, his other spouse, to do something that Jesus would not want him to do. And Paul says, listen, if that's the case, you got to let that person, if he wants to leave, let him leave. Because Jesus comes first. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I've come to turn a, a man against a father, a daughter against a mother, a daughter-in-law against a mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his old household. And that's what happened when the early church began. Because not everybody accepted the lordship, the ultimate sovereignty, the un... The, the, um, Hold on. The unlimited sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. So then Jesus continues there in Matthew 10. He says, if anyone, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me. doesn't say don't love your mother or father. Just if anyone loves them more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he goes on. If you are blessed to have a family, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, children, who also love the Lord, praise Jesus for that. Because you don't ever have to come down to this horrible decision, this, this, this hard decision to make. A, a discipleship decision. Where's my allegiance? Where's my allegiance? To, to my family or to my Lord? Prayerfully, you never will have to make that decision. But people have had to make that decision, and still in parts of the world today, they have to make that decision. So Jesus says the first cost is unlimited sovereignty, that he gets first place. He is our priority. Second of all, then that leads to our second cost of discipleship, which is un, uh, ultimate surrender. Ultimate surrender. So he talked about bearing or carrying your cross. In our idioms, in our language, if somebody says, well, that's my cross to bear, audience participation, what does that mean? Oh, what, what are they talking about? Oh, that's my cross to bear. What? It's a burden. Oh, it's just a burden. I got, I got a cross to bear. It's maybe an unpleasant situation. It may be a very hard situation. Maybe it's, it's, a, uh, it's a diagnosis that just is a horrible diagnosis and doesn't give you much hope. Uh, sometimes it's just the fact that, well, I have to deal with my cousin Ernie and, you know, that's my cross to bear, okay? Does, some, does somebody have a, a cousin named Ernie? Not, not that I would want to uh, bring him in, into disrepute. It's an unpleasant task, but nobody dies having to deal with cousin Ernie. But when Jesus is here, here you must 
deny yourself. You must pick up your cross. You must bear your cross. They would have known exactly what that meant. Some people think that Jesus was actually getting them ready for martyrdom because most of the disciples would actually face cruel deaths because they would not recant their testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there's another angle that I think that we can see because we are told in the New Testament that we have a sinful nature and that sinful nature has destined us for destruction. It is sinful nature. We live in a sinful death. And we are told that that old person must die. That old person that is controlled by sin must die in order for there to be a new person to be reborn, to be born again through this spirit, to live by the spirit, not by the sinful nature. Which, by the way, if you've ever seen a baptism, this is why baptism is important. Because it shows us a picture of somebody dying to themselves, being buried, and then coming out to to a resurrected life. What a great picture of what the Bible calls each and every one of us to do as disciples. So you got to say, I will make the ultimate surrender. Because it's awfully hard when you've invited Jesus to sit on your throne to just sit there and go, hmm, because all of a sudden you get really antsy and you go, well, I want to sit on the throne. And, and we ask Jesus to step off the throne just, just for right now and let me sit on the throne. And Jesus goes, wow, let's, let's, let's deal with that problem. That problem, that, that, that person that wants to continue to get on that throne, that person needs to actually get on the altar and die. And that's what Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, says Paul, in view of God's mercy, not that we earn our salvation by doing this, because Jesus went to the cross while we were still his enemies. That's God's mercy. But in view of God's mercy, guess what? We now need to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Get off the throne. Get on the altar. That's, that's what it means. This is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I love how the Bible tells us truth way before science catches up to it. In psychology, people will tell you that if you want to stop your addictions, if you want to change the path you're on, you got to change this. you got to change the way you think. So often we get traumatized in the way that we think and we need help kind of sorting things out so that we can think right again, think in a healthy way again. Well, the Bible told us that a long time ago. You want to change your habits? You want to change your ways? You got to change your mind. By the way, that's what repentance really means in the Greek. Did you know that? Repentance is metanoia in the Greek. Meta meaning to change or to have transformed and noia means your mindset, the way that you see things, your worldview. So to repent means to change your mind. Repentance is at the heart then of taking up your cross. Because you say, I will die with my sinful mindset. And I will allow God's spirit to come in and resurrect me from my death into a brand new life. And he's going to set a new course for my thoughts and my attitudes and my actions. Well, what does God, 
How does God view people who just say, hey, I want to get in. I, I want to get in. I, I, I want all the benefits of heaven. I want to get in. And then God says, okay, now it's time to work for the kingdom. And they go, oh, no. No, I just wanted to get in. I, I, I don't want this discipleship thing. I just wanted conversion. There's a true story. A, a guy in New York City named Gengaram Mahes, an immigrant from Guyana. He loved to eat well. He loved fine dining experiences. So he decided to uh, begin to eat at New York's finest restaurants and, and order as much as he could and enjoy uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the wonderful tastes and smells that were there. Problem is, he had no money. He didn't have the budget to support what he wanted with all of this fancy stuff. He, he had this grift going on because he would go in to a restaurant. He would get the finest stuff, you know, the, the finest wine, the finest food. He would have his fill. Then they would bring out the check and he said, I don't have any money. So they'd send him to jail and he'd get fed in jail for a, a week or so. And then he'd be released. He's been arrested over three dozen times doing this. See, and it's cost the taxpayers of New York City over $250,000 for his wanting to be fined. And he says, his alibi, his excuse is, well, I just, I want to live decently. I just can't afford it. How often do believers want what Jesus has given to them, has bought for them by his own blood? And yet then when it's time to live for him in this life, they go, eh not so sure I want to do that. That's so appalling to me. Just as appalling as a man who eats for free and then uh, just kind of takes advantage of the system. I wonder how God feels about that. Eternal life, don't get me wrong, eternal life after death is God's guarantee. His guarantee of His gift of grace. But when Jesus came, he came to usher in the kingdom, not just then and there. He came to usher in the kingdom here and now. And he says it begins not when we die. It begins when we die to self. It begins in our heart right now. So your plans, if you're a disciple, crucified. Your ambitions, if you're a disciple, crucified. Uh, your, your self-centeredness, crucified. The pride of your sinful life, crucified. And if you're unwilling to go there, then you've got somebody to contend with. Because it's not just us counting the cost. Jesus is counting the cost as well. He's looking to see who is on his side. Look at how the chapter ends, starting in verse 28. For which of you, this is continuing Jesus' talk, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, well, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good... 
But if salt loses its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Two parables illustrating this point. Both parables come right after Jesus tells his disciples, you must count the cost of discipleship, the cost of unlimited sovereignty, and the cost of ultimate surrender. But Jesus is saying, but I am the one building the tower. Jesus is saying, I am the king that is going out to fight, to to bring back the world into my realm. Yes, we fight along with him. Yes, we we, uh, build his kingdom. But this is Jesus saying, I am counting the cost as well. I need to know before I begin to build this thing, are you with me? Are you willing to count the cost? Because I am. As I go out to war, are you willing to pay the price to count the cost to go with me? Because I am seeing who is with me and who is not with me. You know, a lot of times we, again, love to talk about Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. But do you know what Jesus actually tells us in Matthew 7? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Oh, Wait, wait, wait a second. I just thought that I had to confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Well, we've talked about this before, church. When you confessed that Jesus is Lord with your mouth 2,000 years ago, that meant something. It meant something much more significant than just I raised my hand and I said yes to Jesus. Because Jesus is saying, are you, are you on my team? Are you willing to give up your life so that I might live through you? No. Lord, Lord, I never knew you. That's a scary place to end up. See, that's why I believe, though, that Jesus is talking about himself and and why he ends up talking about salt, because he's told us that we are to be the salt of the earth. God's people are to be salty. Not like that. Not like that. Or maybe like that. I don't know. In, In light of where our culture goes, maybe we need to be salty at some times, you know? But he goes, I, I want you to create a thirst in people so that they'll come see me. I want you to bring the seasoning of my kingdom into this world. I want you to be useful. But apparently salt can lose its saltiness. And then he says, it's worth nothing. He goes, you say, Lord, Lord, but if you're not really on my side, then you are useless. You are useless. And that's a scary place to end up when he says, you cannot be my disciple. But I want to be your disciple. Why? Well, because I want to go to heaven. That's wonderful. What about now? Are you wanting to get into the kingdom now? Uh, Dan, slowly make your way up, right? Leadership Magazine once ran a cartoon, showed a church with a billboard. The billboard said this, if you'll go to that billboard. Welcome to the light church. 24% fewer commitments. Home of the 7.5% tithe the 15-minute sermon, and the 45-minute service. We have only eight commandments, your choice. Uh, Use just three spiritual laws, and we have an 800-year millennium instead of a 1,000-year millennium. Everything, and this was like from the light beer commercial, everything you wanted in a church and less. How many people are looking for churches like that? Well, let me tell you this. That's not who we are here at Powell View Christian Church. I, I... as your pastor that loves you very much, I, I, I don't, 
that it would be very convicting for, for Jesus to say, you've got a, a church uh, full of hangers-on, Trey, who just are trying to get into heaven by the skin of their teeth, who are not being useful to me at all. So the takeaway is twofold. First of all, for those of you who are in this room who have not yet made Jesus your Savior and Lord, Jesus wants you to know that that gift is free. All you got to do is come to Him recognizing your need for a Savior. We have these cards in front of you, in in the chair racks in front of you, that lead you in a a prayer. And it's not those words exactly, but the, the heart behind it is saying, I believe that there is a God who loved me so much that He would give His own Son to die, to, to take away the penalty of my sin so that I could be made righteous. And all I have to do is say yes to that, and I can be forgiven. But Jesus also wants you to know He's not promising you a rose garden, a life of ease after that. He says, in this world you will have trouble. But folks, it is so worth it, not just to have heaven waiting for you, but to have the Holy Spirit inside of you today, helping you, encouraging you, teaching you. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus, to take Him at His word, and to obey, not just to say, I got my free ticket to heaven. And so, yes, it's a heart thing. And there is emotion when you realize that God loved you that much, that you were that valuable to that God, that He would do that for you. There is emotion. But it can't just be based on emotion. It's also got to be based on your will. Are you willing to sign up for what Jesus is asking you to sign up for? So that's the first thing. The second fold of this twofold thing is this. For the majority of us in this room who have already made that decision... We must fight against the laziness of just saying, I've been converted. Conversion is wonderful. I've converted to Christianity. That's fine. You cannot do that without discipleship. You cannot do that without discipleship. Jesus is not mincing words at all. Because when you accept him, yes, his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness are unconditional. But it's very clear, I'm not making this up, that the life of discipleship costs everything everything. Now, there will be people who bristle at that, just like they did in Jesus' time, and they'll say, the cost is too great. Well, I want to remind you and respond to you, if that's your argument, how about the cost of not following him? Is that too great as well? should be, because it's an eternity without him. So, right now, we're getting ready to sing a song that we've already sung today, I Surrender All. My dad used to say, you know, the song does not go, I surrender 10%. I surrender 10%. Because that's my tithe and that's a good thing. No, it really, it's a song of discipleship. And when you really watch those words, it's hard. It's hard to sing that. But I pray that God will begin to open up your heart so that you can sing that. And not only can you sing that, but you will find the joy of singing that. Because now you are with your creator in a way that you have never been before. And there is an eternal destiny waiting for you. An an eternity that begins right now as you say yes to Jesus. By the way, those cards are always in the chair racks in front of us. uh, Sharing how one can accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. 
We don't get a lot of people who are not saved into this building on a Sunday morning. But I bet that every single one of you has somebody in your life that does not know the Lord. Why don't you consider sometime taking that card with you and going out with that card and be able then to use that card to help you lead somebody to make Jesus the Lord of their life rather than to just wait for them to come here and find that out for themselves. You know, I love you guys. I love serving as your pastor. Would you stand with me? I want to pray, and then we're going to sing this song. And I would pray that this would truly be your song of decision and dedication. God, we do come before you knowing that you've asked us to make you Lord, the sovereign, the unlimited sovereign. Forgive us when we put other things and other people in place of you before you. God, we want to uh, declare with our lives that you are Lord. And then, Lord, that leads us to the ultimate surrender, to die to ourselves. As we accept your free gift of salvation, God, you now call us into discipleship to follow you. And so, God, that looks different for different people, but it's always about putting our sinful nature to death so that we might live a, a born-again life. So, God, today, as we sing this song, as we close our service, May this be our true heart's cry that we surrender all because we know we have acknowledged that you are the best Lord to surrender to. God, thank you so much for your love, for your forgiveness. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that changes us into the image of Jesus. As we sing this, may you receive our words in our hearts as a sweet aroma in your, in, to, to your nose, to your, to your senses, God. May you be honored and blessed as we bless you with this song. And all God's people said, amen.